This is Rick Bino, pastor of Hocassin Baptist Church, and you are listening to Holy Inconvenience, the third sermon in our Jesus of Suburbia series. First, our scripture readings, and then the sermon. During this series on Jesus in Suburbia, we've been focusing our attention to passages from Jesus' teaching and also from the prophecies of Amos, and we're going to read our scripture for today. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me and follow along. We'll start with Amos 6, and then we'll turn over to Matthew chapter 11. So I'll give you a second to find Amos 6. We'll be reading verses 1 through 8, and then we'll turn over to Matthew chapter 11. Amos 6, verse 1. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalna and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath, and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on your beds and laid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and you use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. Turn now to Matthew chapter 11. We'll be reading verses 28 through 30. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If you ever wonder whether or not your life is filled with enough ease, if you ever wonder if you're comfortable enough or if you're ever unsure of whether or not you have enough conveniences in your life, I encourage you to turn on the TV for your answers. Because you will find there that your life is simply not as comfortable, not as convenient, and not as easy as it could be. Just watch TV for a little while and you're likely to see yourself portrayed. Someone just like you, struggling in suburbia. And you know that they're struggling, not because of just their their difficulties, but because they're in black and white. Have you seen these commercials? They start out in black and white, they show some poor guy trying to push his lawnmower 
through three feet of grass. At which point I wonder, kind of let, your, kind of let his yard go, I think, but he's trying to push through, and he's struggling, he's sweating, he's grunting, he's pushing it through, and it's all in black and white, while a voiceover laments the struggle of this poor gentleman. Or you see some housewife. She's standing in front of, black and white, she's standing in front of this stove, that stove top that's totally gunked with food. I mean, it doesn't, she doesn't, obviously she doesn't even cook on pans. She just cooks right on the top. <laughs> right? And she's scrubbing. She's scrubbing. She's grunting and she's scrubbing. There's a lock of hair. She keeps blowing out of her hair. That's you. Black and white. And it's a black and white to show you that that's not the way life should be lived. No. Life should be lived in color. But then, fortunately for you, color arrives when the product of convenience arrives. And so with that new mower, or with that new stovetop cleaner, or new mop, or whatever it is, color comes onto the screen. Happiness comes to the man and the woman as their life suddenly becomes all that it once could be. And there you sit in your living room going, I could use one of those. My life's been kind of colorless lately. And so you pick up the phone and you call and you order this great new convenience and you wait for color to arrive. You wait for color to arrive right on your doorstep to be brought to you in a brown box out of a brown truck by a man wearing all brown. (laughs) But the irony is lost on you because you're excited about the color. And for the ease that you've so longed for. Well, good morning once again, and welcome back to our journey through suburbia and thinking about what it means to be a Christian and a Jesus follower in suburbia. Our studies have been coming from the book of Amos and from the teachings of Jesus. And all along, I've been proposing to you that suburbia sells you more than just a nice house, but it sells you a certain viewpoint of life, a certain worldview of the world that it tells you you have to adopt. And I've been arguing that we do not have to adopt it, and as Christians, we should not adopt it. But let's review the terms and conditions that suburbia is pushing upon you. Here's what suburbia says. You will focus on competition, advancement, and achievement. You will characterize yourself as a consumer and consistently accumulate material goods. You will show a high regard for comfort and convenience. And you will prioritize independence and protectiveness of yourself, your family, and your possessions. Now, these four terms and conditions of suburbia, they're very interrelated. We've been kind of attacking them from different directions. Today, I want to focus our attention on the idea of a life of ease and convenience. It is difficult for most of us to imagine life without some of these so-called modern conveniences. Now, I'm not going to ask anybody their age, were you alive when a certain thing was invented, but some of you can remember a little further back than others. So some of you remember the, the first time that your town or the first time your parents got a telephone. You can remember the party lines where one phone line was shared by a whole street. Some of you may remember 
refrigerators and dishwashers. You may remember washing machines and dryers entering into your home. The younger set, we, you, I don't know which part I'm, I don't know if I'm part of the younger set anymore. We remember, I remember the microwave. First time we got a microwave in our home, it was a big deal. We were all scared of it. If you remember this time, there was all kinds of rumors that if you had a microwave in your home, it would microwave your children if they stood in front of it, right? So my, you know, my parents had me like at the neighbor's house whenever they would cook in the microwave because we weren't quite sure what was radiating out of it. But all we knew is we could put chicken into it and when it came out, it was hot and cooked. It was like magic. And I'm not going to speak today against conveniences. I like conveniences. I'm in full support of indoor plumbing. I support that. As a Christian, as a Jesus follower, I think indoor plumbing is of God. So I'm not going to rail against modern conveniences. But what I want to think about in the same way that we've thought earlier is not the conveniences themselves, but the mindset of convenience that suburbia pushes upon us. Because what suburbia will tell you is that if it's convenient, it's good. If it's inconvenient, it's bad. I want to advocate today something I have dubbed holy inconvenience. And what I want to argue for today is that some of the most substantial and meaningful and important part of our lives are going to be inconvenient. Now, there's a sense that we have an understanding of this already. If you've ever had a child, you've experienced holy inconvenience, haven't you? Right? It is not convenient to get up in the middle of the night when your infant is screaming. It is not convenient to drag yourself to his or her room and pick up the child. But as you do, and as you love the child and nurse the child and care for the child, your inconvenience becomes a holy inconvenience, doesn't it? And so raising children is an obvious example of a place where we all accept holy inconvenience. At least you try to accept it. But there's other areas of our lives that we resist holy inconvenience. And I want to explore some of those today because it's in these holy inconveniences that our life has color and meaning in spite of what the commercials will tell you. So turn with me again, if you have your Bibles, to Amos chapter 6. We'll start with a couple points from that first. I'm going to offer three holy inconveniences, two from our Amos text and one from the teachings of Jesus. What we found from uh, our study of Amos so far is that many people in Israel at this time were living well. They were living high on the hog. They were happy. They were powerful. They were secure. We see that in the first few verses of this section. They're complacent. They're at ease. They're in their fortresses. They're hanging out. They're powerful. They're the notable men. They're in control. But if you look back a few verses in Amos 5, verse 11, you'll see how they came into power. Amos 5.11 says this, You trample the poor and force him to give you grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. 
And though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. And so we see the way that they became powerful. We see the way that they became strong. It was through the oppression of the weak. And we all face the same risk today. We risk becoming secure and comfortable and powerful at the expense of others. And sometimes we do it without even noticing it. So here is our first holy inconvenience to offset this danger, and that is connect with the powerless. Make a connection with the powerless. Connecting with the powerless tends to be very inconvenient. It takes time and effort and intentionality, and there may not be any immediate rewards. And the nation of Israel in this passage is condemned, all through Amos, is condemned for their ignorance of the oppressed and of the powerless of society. And us getting involved in the life of the poor and of the powerless is just one way that we counteract the mindset of ease and comfort that suburbia presses upon us. We're going to focus our whole time next week on ways that a suburban church can connect with the poor and the powerless. Because much of Amos speaks to it directly. But in preparation for that discussion, I can tell you now, it will not be convenient. And it may not be comfortable, and it may not fit in your schedule. But when we seek this holy inconvenience of reaching out to the poor and to the powerless, we find Christ. But I don't want us to limit our thinking of the powerless just to the destitute. Because there's likely powerless people in your life that you could care for in a more significant way. There's likely someone at your work who does not know people, does not get along well with others, maybe has some personality traits that turns other people off. They have no power and no sway in your company, and you ought to ask them for lunch to hang out with them a little bit, to talk with them. There may be a young mother looking for friendship, doesn't have anybody for her kids to play with, and you need to invite that young mother into your circle because she has no other way of finding this fellowship. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, has a kind of love he calls the gift love. And gift love is a love that you give without expecting return, or in other words, a gift that you give that does not immediately add value to your life. Gift love is shown to people who do not enhance your position. Gift love is shown to people who are not going to help you network with the right people in the world. That's gift love. Gift love is not loving someone because they add value to you, But gift love is loving someone because they have value as a creation of God. And so we love them and we care for them. One of the dangers of suburbia is that it teaches us and encourages us to avoid the powerless and the weak as much as possible. And if we're going to counteract that, We have to have in the front of our minds and an intentionality in our hearts that I'm going to seek out and look for the powerless and the needy 
and the hurting. And by doing that, you will begin to sway the tide away from the mindset of suburbia. And in that inconvenience, you will find goodness. Well, if you look at the second section of Amos here, you'll see that the people were living fine. Look at verse 4. They lie in their beds and laid with ivory, lounge on their couches, they're dining, choice lambs, fattened calves, they're strumming on the harp. They're improvising on musical instruments. They're not just drinking wine, but they're drinking it by the bowlful. They're using the finest lotions. They're doing just fine. But there's a major problem. Look at the end of verse 6. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. You see, morally things are not going well. Spiritually things are not going well. The society is falling apart with injustice. And these Israelites are comfortable in their homes, playing music, eating rich food, chilling out. This brings us to our second inconvenience. Reject the excess of ease. Reject the lifestyle here that's found in Amos. Now last week we talked a lot about simplicity and this idea of ease. I want to talk a little bit today about the idea of rejecting. I'd like us to take away from this series, if nothing else, the idea that we have a choice. We don't have to follow the terms of suburbia. You don't have to buy what suburbia says you need to buy. You don't have to have the conveniences that suburbia insists you have to have. You have a choice. And we must remember that we have the choice. We can accept it or we can reject it. Jesus sets up this choice. He says, where are you going to put your heart? Decide that by deciding where you're going to put your treasure. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, you can't serve both God and money. You've got to serve one or the other. Choose. Where will your heart be? Renovating your kitchen, buying a new TV, keeping up with the latest video game systems, these are all choices. Suburbia says you must buy it. Jesus says you choose to. Choose whom you will serve. Now, after last week's discussion on simplicity and this week's little discussion, there's probably some of you that are just like, all right, all right, can you just tell me what I can buy? Can you just produce a list? Can you just tell me what it is? Is it okay? You're thinking, we want to renovate our kitchen. Is it okay or not? We want to buy blank. A TV, a book, a house. Can we do it? Just come on. Well, I can't answer that for you. Now, there's now, no doubt there's been periods in church history where church leaders and denominations have tried. They've tried to put out edicts of what is allowed and what's not allowed and all this kind of stuff about where you can buy and how you could live, but generally it hasn't worked well. And the reasons are it is too easy and it's too hard at the same time. Now, it's obvious why it's too hard. How in the world would I sit down and come up with this list? Can you imagine? A 42-inch flat-screen TV is okay, as long as the purchase price was less than 0.3% of your income. 
right? A $38,000 minivan is fine, but not a $38,000 sports car. The number of shoes in your house must equal the number of feet divided by four, times by four, multiple times. Well, that would be divided by four. You all be jumping around on one foot. But you can see the problem. How in the world would we come up with this kind of list? The other problem is that leads to a raging and stifling legalism between the leadership and you and between one another. So it's too hard, but on the other hand, it's too easy. There's a part of us, would you, we would just, God, can you just send down a memo every week with the new products listed on it with a yay or a nay? iPod, I, iPhone. I want an iPhone. Is that, is, that, is that Just give me a list. Tell me yes or no. I'll do it. Right? There's a part of us that desires a list, a memo for suburban America. But there's a sense in which that is too easy. Consider these two commands. Thou shalt not buy a luxury SUV. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. The first command is a lot different than the second, isn't it? The first one's a lot easier than the second. The first one puts us in submission to a rule. The second one puts us in a submission to a person, to God. The first is static and impersonal. The second, dynamic and personal. The first one is too easy because it requires no relationship, no depth, no work, no maturity to follow. The second one is harder because it engages our soul. It engages our conscience It engages our imagination. So God says, I'm not going to tell you thou shalt not buy an SUV. God's going to say, get to know me. Understand my heart. Understand your own heart and make sure you have no gods before me. That's hard work. That's a holy inconvenience right there. It's hard work. But God has given us all kinds of of ways to discover what to do. I encourage you, whenever you have a choice to buy something or a choice to accumulate a new convenience, engage your mind. Remember that you have a choice. Engage the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. Engage the wisdom of others. I'd love to hear more stories of a life group that gets together and someone in their life group says, you know, I'd like the group to pray for me and my wife. We're thinking about renovating our kitchen. It's going to cost us $8,000. We want to make sure that's the right way to spend our money. Will the life group pray with us for a month about that? Wouldn't that be awesome? Life group leaders, try that sometime. Engage other people about your purchases. And remind yourself of the truth we looked at last week from 818. Remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. When you are at a store and you're about to buy something, I simply want you to hear in your head, should I spend God's wealth in this way? Now, I must admit, I don't generally pray for my sermons to haunt you. Not generally. This is an exception. The next time you make a purchase, I want you to hear my voice in your head saying, Should you spend God's wealth this way? 
because it's a choice. Now, as disturbing as it may be to have me in your head, there's freedom in all of this, too. You can be comforted that you can invite me to your house without taking down your 42-inch flat-screen TV and hanging up a big portrait of Jesus in its place. <laughs> it's okay. My goal and role in life is not to judge you based on what you've owned and what you've bought, and I don't encourage you to judge each other. But because I'm not judging you, and because I don't want you to judge each other, does not mean you will not be judged, because you will be. The testimony of Scripture about this is as consistent as possible. From the first five books of the Bible, to the poetry, to the prophecies, to Jesus' teachings, to Paul's teaching, all the way through the Revelation, the Bible teaches you will give account for how you have spent and used what God has given you. You will give account. Not to me, but you will give account. And so I just encourage you, think about it. Make the choice. Even here in Amos 6, 7-8, we see this, this judgment that's upon, that will be upon the Israelites. Therefore, You will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. In our suburban world, it is a holy inconvenience to reject the conveniences of society. But I encourage you, to take the stand. Well, finally, let's turn over to Matthew 11 for our final point, and we'll close with these few minutes. And this one is somewhat ironic. The third holy inconvenience is rest. The third holy inconvenience is rest. Now, you might be saying, wait, wait a minute. You've just been talking about ease and, and convenience, and, and now you're telling me to rest? Are we supposed to avoid a life of ease or not? Well, let's work through this for a second. We are surrounded, as we've said, by labor-saving, time-saving, quote-unquote time-saving devices. Ben Franklin, who was a little bit of an inventor himself, back in the late 1700s says, said this. He predicted that with the modern conveniences that the American worker would begin to only have to work four hours a week. Here we are quite a number of decades later, and billions of dollars of conveniences later, and I don't know anyone who's working four hours a week. This is what I'm thinking. I think that hurry, hurry is the dark side of convenience. Think about it. Why is a convenience store convenient? Because you can run in, get your milk, your bread, your candy bar, and your Slurpee, and get out in like eight seconds, right? That's why they're convenient. Because they're fast. So we can get that done and move on to something else. It's convenient because it's fast, and it, and it ramps up the speed of our lives. Fast food is fast because it's fast. How's that? Right? It's fast, so we like it. Think of your modern communications. It's quick, right? Email, instant messaging, text messaging, Blackberries. 
These are all modern conveniences that has made us a very, very hurried people. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have sent an email and then wondered, why in the world is this person not answering me? (laughs) Right? It's like 15 minutes later and you're like, aren't they at work? What are they doing? Right? You text message someone, you don't get a response right away, you text message them again, where are you? You do it. I know you do it. So we're, we're caught up in this life of hurry. Everything's rushed. Cooked a meal in the microwave this week. 45 seconds. Put in 45 seconds, stand there, I hold my hand on the door and I wait. Right? And then what do I do? Same thing you do. 10 seconds left, open it up. Because I can't wait any longer. All right, that's close enough, right? You do it, right? That's close enough, close enough. My kids are like, the chicken's still frozen in the middle. Eat it. (laughs) Frozen chicken's good for you. Right? We can't even wait for the microwave. This convenience in our lives has, has pushed us into this life of hurry. Stephen Wright is a comedian. He speaks kind of with a monotone voice. He says this. He says, I put my instant coffee in my microwave and I almost went back in time. (laughs) Instant coffee, instant messaging, fast food, quickie marts, they all make us hurry. They're all conveniences, but they all make us hurry. Here's what I propose. Suburbia offers us ease. It does not offer us rest. Jesus says, come to me. I will give you rest for your souls. We as American Christians, we struggle with resting in Christ. We struggle to take a Sabbath, to spend time with God, to pray for more than 15 minutes. We're very good at ease, but we're very bad at rest. But that is what Christ is offering us. Not ease, but rest. Suburbia is not going to tell you to take Sunday off. Suburbia is not going to tell you not to schedule things late on Saturday night so you and your kids are alert and on time on Sunday morning. Suburbia is not going to tell you that. Suburbia doesn't even tell you to have a family meal anymore. Matter of fact, suburbia in the Northeast doesn't even tell you to go to church anymore. But these are all holy inconveniences that bring us closer to understanding Christ. Carving out time for prayer and Bible study and meditation, it's not convenient. It's not convenient. It's inconvenient, but it's a holy inconvenience. Memorizing scripture with your kids, having family meals, these things aren't always convenient. But the biblical rest that it ushers us into is a mindset about life. Biblical rest is not just the idea of not doing something, like maybe part of it, but it's a new worldview that counteracts suburbia's worldview. And one Jewish theologian puts it this way. I think this is a great understanding of time and of rest. There is a realm of time where the goal is not to have, but to be. Not to own, but to give. Not to control, but to share. 
not to subdue, but to be in accord. This is rest, to be, to give, to share, and to be in accord with one another. We have built in us a desire for rest. It's a holy desire. We long for heaven because we long for eternal rest. No sorrow, no stress, no depression. Being with God in our internal rest. We long for rest. It is a holy desire. But we have tried to fulfill this desire with ease when Christ calls us to rest. And so for as long as we are on this earth, I bless you and encourage you to tackle some of these holy inconveniences. Connect with the powerless, reject lives of ease, and rest. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, these are hard teachings, but at the same time, we can't avoid them because they're all over Scripture. All over Scripture, you tell us to connect with the powerless. You tell us not to depend on our wealth. You tell us to rest. And Lord, we want to ignore it, and suburbia tells us to ignore it, but Lord, we are going to take a stand as families, as individuals, and as congregations, as a congregation. We want to take a stand against suburbia and live rightly within it for Jesus. I encourage you to think for a moment of these three points and of perhaps which one you need to think about most this week. Is it rest? Is it connecting with the powerless? Is it rejecting a life of ease? Let the Holy Spirit direct your hearts and direct your thinking.